Great. So good morning, everybody. Good to be with you guys this morning. And uh, before we jump into our text and continue in Mark, I want to quickly just draw our attention to two kind of leadership dynamics, two leadership dynamics from me uh, to you guys, to everybody online. The first one is, I'm not sure if you guys have followed at all online, but I've had numerous people in uh, kind of uh, inquire of me, what are we as a church doing? Is this uh, a legitimate request? But I'm not sure if you've heard of the uh, Papuda, Papuda, I think I'm saying that right. It's a difficult one. Papuda Amendment Bill, right? Lots of videos going around online, social media, and things like that. Pretty much, I need to uh, tell you about this because we want to call for participation active citizenship at this time, right? So pretty much the government has got a bill that is being amended. It's got to do with our freedom of religion, and it's something that we believe we need to uh, oppose. And there's opportunity whenever a bill like this gets amended for the kind of society, community, to uh, comment. And so we would love to ask you to put in your comments. What is the amendment kind of uh, moving towards? It's moving towards a greater restriction on the freedom of religion. And so in time to come, they're suggesting that government will kind of oversee religious activities a lot more uh, kind of stringently and that there can be criminal action taken. Uh, I mean, that you can be prosecuted as being seen as a criminal for believing what you believe. And so there's a great restriction in this, and we don't believe that it's going to be good for our society. It's going to be good for uh, members of society who are also members of faith, no matter what that faith is. And so we want to encourage you. Why don't you go onto the 4SA, that's their website. Uh, website, why don't you go and click and follow all of those things. On matters like this, we as a church are a kind of formally and officially represented by uh, FORSA in these matters, but it's open to the public. And so this is an opportunity for active citizenship. So before Wednesday, Wednesday is the cutoff. So maybe before the end of Tuesday, if you wouldn't mind just popping onto that website, following those things, and, and then making comments to uh, government with regards to why we feel like this bill would be unhelpful. You will find lots more online if you want to look into it, but we really do believe it's an opportunity for us to actively participate in good citizenship at this time. We know bad things happen when good people stand back and do nothing, right? So let's step forward in this moment. Secondly, I want to uh, kind of draw attention to the COVID realities. We've prayed into that, and we understand that the president is going to make, make further addresses tonight. So I hear, we'll see if that happens, but would love to just kind of uh, lead us as a community at this time. And we believe that it's both appropriate and timely and right for us to go back online fully with regards to uh, our gatherings. So as of next Sunday, we won't have uh, many people in the room, just our service teams. We'll still stay live, but as of next Sunday, 9.30 and 4.30, all Bosch's meetings will be online only, and you won't be able to sign up to be in person. We feel like this is right to do as things kind of ramp back up again in the third wave and a second thing is we'd love to encourage all of our ministries and life groups and courses and things like that to consider going, uh, moving towards online wherever possible, as soon as possible, as we've just heard things are ramping up substantially. And particularly in the area of kind of home transfers. So particularly young adults and youth are finding themselves just hanging out in each other's spaces. And when they do so, obviously kind of restriction, uh, kind of restrictive measures like uh, masks and not kind of sharing each other's uh, grape juice or whatever it is, is, is kind of not being held to in the same ways that we would do it here when we gathered in the church context. And so we feel like it's appropriate for us to just call us all to be back online. And maybe I could just encourage us, uh, just as Ian has been sharing this, mo this morning, being a people of faith. That's what God calls us to. And when we were talking about this, I, I must be honest, my own heart and even some of the hearts of my friends, the people around me that I see regularly Lily, I think we're a little bit like the Israelites in the desert. And I want to call us to recognize that we are the people of God in this time. Yes, it's easy for us to moan and groan and, and it's wilderness dynamics and life isn't as it should be, right? But the reality is that we are the people of God. 
And we are people who have hope and we are people that can draw on the resources of heaven. So even as things are difficult in this season and in this time, I wanna encourage us, won't we be a people of faith? Won't we be a people who live well and shine our lights brightly in this time? Don't just give in to the kind of normal cultural cynicism of our day and our age. Let's be a people on the front foot. Let's access the resources of heaven and let's participate in these matters with grace and kindness. All right, so those are my two kind of leadership charges this morning. Today we're in Mark chapter 10, and I'm not sure about you, but personally I'm loving the treasure chest of God's Word and how, in a sense, you can read a story and you can kind of say, oh, I've followed that before. Yeah, Jesus is kind of moving towards Jerusalem, and hey, he comes across a beggar, etc., etc. And yet, this treasure chest has got so much more in it then often we see at first kind of viewing. And this morning, I'm super excited to jump into Mark chapter 10. We're gonna cover a whole chunk of the text from 32 to 52. And, and here's the, the great kind of question of the text. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And Jesus is gonna ask this of two different, James and John, his disciples, and Bartimaeus, this blind beggar, he's going to ask this question of these two different groups. And so I want to start this morning by imagining for a moment, just close your eyes, don't fall asleep. Imagine for a moment Jesus is standing in front of you and he's saying to you, what do you want me to do for you? Right now in this moment, what do you want me to do for you? Right now in COVID wave three, what do you want me to do for you? Right now in the circumstances of your life and career and relationships and family, what do you want me to do for you? I wonder what your answer would be. Now, open your eyes again. I can imagine, right? I can imagine uh, the answer to that question for some is going to be, can we just take away COVID, God? Can we cause the madness to stop? Maybe it's something more simplistic, more simplistic like, God, can we just have fans back in the stadiums? It's a bit odd watching sport with no one there. Maybe we can ask God, won't you allow me to travel again? I want to go and see my family. Maybe it's something at that level. Or maybe some bucks, Lord, that would be great. Just some bucks would get me through. Maybe you'd ask a much deeper ask of God. God, won't you heal my sick family member? God, won't you help my depressed teenager? God, won't you come and take the darkness and the depression and the anxiety of my own life, won't you come and take that away, God? Maybe you would ask God today to restore your business or a broken relationship. But this is a huge question, and the king of the universe, Christ himself, asks this question of us. We're gonna work through this passage and work through all of these different verses and it's narrative, so it's not that technical, but it's my hope that as we work through these three different sections, we will come to find ourselves in a place of being able to answer that question for ourselves. What is it that we want to ask of God? And we're gonna look at three points today, and I hope that they become clear from the text. Firstly, God has his own agenda. Secondly, God's kingdom agendas are contrary to worldly agendas. And thirdly, our agenda our agenda, maybe even what we would ask of God, is, rightly, is, is shaped by rightly recognizing Jesus for who he is. So we're going to jump into verse 32, and we'll start with that first point. God has his own agenda. And we'll see. We know, right, for those of you who haven't maybe been with us for that long, we are tracking with Jesus, and he is now coming in. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's coming into Jerusalem. We know what happens in Jerusalem. This is where he gets arrested and where he gets charged, and he then goes on to be crucified. And really what's happening is Jesus is, is marching towards this, this purpose that he understands God has for him. And he's not going to get distracted because he's got this 
God-given agenda, and he's about that business, and he's not even going to be distracted by the fear of his followers and the disciples that are closest to him. Listen to verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Today's going to be one of those moments where it's best to have your Bible open in front of you because we're going to work through so many scriptures, but you'll see how they lead into each other. But here, Jesus is, is determined, determined to be moving towards Jerusalem. He's, he's pressing on in his kind of purpose in God, and it's really astonishing his disciples. And some of the others seem to be kind of holding off and stepping back, and they're afraid, right? And commentators, uh, commentators suggest, why is it? that they're so astonished. Why is it that they're so afraid? Well, they know Jerusalem is a dangerous place for Jesus' followers. And so what we see is Jesus is marching out in front, and he's kind of moving towards this purpose and this agenda that God has for him, and yet his very own disciples are somewhat astonished by his boldness, and some of the other followers are stepping even further back. You can kind of imagine that they're getting more and more concerned. What happens if some soldiers jump out of the bush on the road and want to grab this guy? I don't want to be seen with him. I don't want to be found with him. He's not going to be distracted. What does he do? As he's setting his kind of mind and his, his face towards this final stage of his mission, he's undeterred by them. And we carry on in verse 32, and yet he wants to, he wants to kind of teach them and he wants to tell them exactly why it is he's so undeterred and what he's moving towards. And taking the 12 again, from verse 32, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the third time that Jesus is speaking to his disciples and predicting his death. This is the third time. We know the first time what happens. Peter seems to kind of go, no ways, Jesus, I'll never let it happen. And, and Jesus has to rebuke him. Get behind me, Satan. And the second time, that was in, in Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 9, he's speaking to his disciples again, and he tells them about some of these details. And then what happens? The disciples don't even seem to pay attention. They just get on with bickering about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus doubles down and he goes again. And this third description is the most detailed, the most detailed description of exactly what's going to happen, how it's going to happen. And they're on their way and Jesus is trying to help them understand that this is what they're on their way to. This is what is coming. And he's trying to help them understand that it's not about his personal desire. It's about God's agenda for him. Jesus knows the will of the Father, and Jesus knows that he has been sent to do a specific thing, and clearly he knows exactly what's going to happen. Now, this doesn't sound so profound to us. Why? Because we've all watched the movie. We all know exactly what's going to happen. But imagine for these guys hearing this from Jesus to the details of they're going to spit on him, and they think, no, man, this guy is crazy. What is he on about? All these details of exactly how this is going to happen. And you can then imagine, fast forward just a few days and weeks to when they're seeing these exact things happen, these exact things as they spit on Jesus as they crucify him and as he is resurrected, you can imagine their eyes being opened to like, oh, wow, this is what he was speaking about. It's clearly not what the disciples wanted, but God has his own agenda. Sometimes I think I can undervalue, undervalue exactly how much the penny still needed to drop for these guys. And I wonder for those who are visiting today, maybe you're joining us online and, and you're still deciding what you believe and considering the Christian faith. I think this question has got to be one of the biggest questions. What do we believe about who this Jesus 
was? What do we believe about who this Jesus was? Was he a, a good moral teacher? Was he a madman talking about being God and dying and all those kinds of things? Or was he, in fact, God come as a man? That's one of the great questions of life. When you think about the exactness of his predictions here, predicting what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem and that he's also going to die and be resurrected, I think you get an understanding of what I believe and who it is I believe we're dealing with here. Jesus says this to his, his close buddies, his, his close peers, and yet it's clear they don't get it, right? Let's continue from verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Trick question, right? And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? There it is. There's the big question. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. One at your left, one at your right, in your glory. Now, I'm not sure about you, but if you're a parent here this morning, or maybe you've got nephews or nieces or you've ever taught in any school environment, the truth is that when my kids come up to me and they're like, oh, daddy, do you really love us? Do you love us, daddy? Do you really love us? I'm kind of like, hey, back off. What's going on here? I know that they kind of buttering me up for a, for a kind of a big request, an audacious request, and that's exactly what uh, these friends of Jesus do here. Jesus says to his two closest friends, even though he can see that they're most probably kind of on their own unhelpful track here. He's gracious with them. He's kind with them. And he, he agrees. And he says, what is it that you want me to do for you? Jesus has already laid glory aside. He's come out of heaven. He is incarnated into the reality of being in a fleshly broken body. And he's already on his way literally to go and lay down his life for these guys. And he's been telling them about that and the cross to come. And he's been teaching them for three years that, guys, this is not about you. This is not about you. This is about God's agenda for my life and my obedience to him. And yet Jesus, knowing exactly what they're going to ask, he still graciously gives them the room. How is it that I can serve you? What do you want me to do for you? I'm not sure about you, but when I look at the disciples, I think it's quite tragic. I mean, come on, guys. How can you miss this so badly? Seems so immature. They seem so doff, right? But let's not be too quick to judge because I know about my life, even in my 21 years, 23 years of being a Christian now, I know that I have these moments where this is sometimes true of me. When I come to God for what I can get out, right? When I miss a moment with God because I'm so kind of distracted and on my own agenda and my own pluck that I miss out the agenda of God for my life. But this is one of the main passages for us to reflect on today. What do we truly want from Jesus what do we truly want from Jesus? Because I believe that the answer to that question will fundamentally shape our engagement with him, right? In our home, we've been speaking to our kids, so they are 13, 11, and 9 now, and most mornings uh, during the week, we have a family devotion. We sing a little bit. We pray a little bit. We, we do some um, word study. We get into understanding the Bible a little bit, and it's, the whole thing lasts for about 15 minutes, right? But what we've been trying to teach our kids, Kate and I, is that, guys, we don't come to God as like genie God with our list of wishes. Yay, every morning you get three wishes. Make them good. No, we, we, we're trying to help our kids to understand that we come to God because he's God and we're not. We come to God on the basis of his revelation of himself. And what's the primary revelation of God the Father 
or sorry, of God is God being a father, right? And what's the primary revelation of Christ? Christ is savior and head of the church. And what's the primary revelation of the Holy Spirit? That he is counselor, comforter, and guide. And we come to God, not based on our own understanding of him, but on his own revelation of himself to us. And so when we come to God and we recognize him as father, not genie God, who's dispensing wishes to us, we come with a a different anticipation, a different faith level, a different engagement, and, and, and we engage God as a good heavenly father for relationship and for intimacy and to experience something of his embrace in our lives. And out of that place and position, we then confidently ask as children with a good relationship with their father do. My heavenly father, Jesus taught us to pray just like that, our father. Unfortunately, it's still clear that these guys aren't getting it. But I wonder again this morning, what is your answer to that question from Jesus? What is the answer? What can Jesus do for you? See, these guys are like stingy little kids. It's clear that they, they're in it for themselves, and I can see something of my stingy little self in James and John. I don't have to look very far into my life to see it. But, but guess what? James and John aren't even that much better than the disciples. And this is not the first time. You may have heard me say this because just a couple of chapters ago, they were doing exactly the same thing. But let's jump forward to verse 41, right? So we've skipped a few verses here. Verse 41, we see that actually the disciples aren't doing much better either. And when the 10 heard, so 12 disciples, two of them, James and John, they come to Jesus. When the other 10 heard, they began to be indignant, indignant at James and John. Why did they become indignant? It's not that they were going, oh guys, you've dropped the ball. It's not about you. It's about Jesus and what he's doing. No, that's not at all what's going on here. These guys are indignant with James and John because they perceive that they've jumped the the lunch queue, right? They've perceived that these guys have run out in front and gone, come on, God, give us the position of prominence. Give us the place of privilege. And so these guys are, are grumpy with them, kind of like, come on, guys, you're trying to get your own personal benefit again. And they're wanting to pull them back to stand in line in that sense. Jesus was unveiling the reality of what sharing his glory meant. And these guys are all squabbling again around that word glory. See, they get a, they get a sense that Jesus is talking about his glory and they're like, yes, we're in, we wanna be in on that. But they fundamentally understand what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about his glory. It's a tragedy because I think their, their desires are too small Their desires are too short-sighted. They don't understand and and perceive what Jesus is talking about. But Jesus doesn't rebuke them. And I think this is so good for us today as we come to King Jesus. We recognize he doesn't rebuke us for our short-sightedness and for our smallness. He just wants to continually open our eyes to a greater revelation of who he is. And so he explains it. He gives them the opportunity to understand a bit more about this kingdom. And this leads us to point number two, God's kingdom's agendas. God's kingdom agendas are contrary to to worldly agendas and to our own agendas. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able, we're able I wonder if we look at the larger flow of this section of text, do we see the contrast between God trying to to kind of make his agenda known and these disciples trying to insert their agenda into that? Do you see it? But here Jesus plainly tells them that their request pretty much just makes plain that they are ignorant of the true nature of this kingdom that he's introducing. They're ignorant to the true nature of what it is that Jesus is talking about here. It's clear that they don't get it. This cup that he had to drink, this baptism that he was gonna be baptized into was all symbolic of his suffering to come. But James and John, they don't get that. And they're just like, yeah, we're able. We're able, we can do it. I'm sure if they understood his glory, 
to mean the cross. They wouldn't have been as quick to want a piece of it, right? They wouldn't have been as quick to say, yes, we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand in your glory. The tragedy is they think that their agenda is totally aligned to God's agenda. And as I was working this through, I, I couldn't help but have that question pop into my mind. And I wonder if it'll be helpful to you. I think it will. God, where do I think that my agenda and your agendas are aligned when actually they're not? God, where do I think that my agendas and your agendas are aligned when actually they're not? Is it in my plans for my life? Is it in my relationships? Is it in my finances? Is it maybe in my use of time? Maybe it's in my understanding of truth, my agenda, your agenda. I think that they're aligned, but maybe they're, they're not. I think this is a great question for us as the people of God to ponder ongoingly every day, to create room to hear back from God on this. This is not one of those questions that you kind of just go, hey God, I wonder if any, and then you move on. No, 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 this is a question I think we need to ponder. We need to create room to hear God back on these matters. What, imagine, imagine for a moment that we had a church full of people that regularly assess their agendas and whether or not they're in alignment with God's agenda and where they're not, they made adjustments to bring them into alignment. What a powerful people that would be. How God could use a people like that to, to in, like, just increase and live out and, and see his purposes fulfilled in our day and our age. I want to be a part of a people like that. Kate and I recently we became, of an, became aware of an area in our lives where, where we had thought our agendas were aligned with God's agendas and we were living it out pretty well. And over time, we actually realized, shucks, we're missing it on this one. And it was in the area of our own experience and expression of spiritual community. So I'm a pastor in a church, right? I'm surrounded with great Christian people all the time. And we are in leadership meetings, and then we're in this moment, and we pastorally hanging out with these people, and we're doing lots of life together with lots of people. And then I wouldn't say that I have a bad walk with God personally, and Kate and I, we kind of back the strength of our individual walks with God. And so we were kind of like, hey, on both of those counts, we're doing pretty good in the kind of spiritual journey space. And we felt like God just started to highlight to us that we're actually standing on the outside of the personal peer-to-peer body ministry dynamics of spiritual community, which is part of his plan for all of us. And we grapple with this a little bit. And during COVID, we tried to start a group online and that didn't really work out. And then coming into this year, we took about three months to get this going. But I'm glad to share that a few weeks ago, we got back into life group. It's been many years. And we're already experiencing the benefit of peer-to-peer body ministry. And we're coming to love these people. And guess what? We're not leading. We just grabbed a whole bunch of people who I was frankly quite surprised weren't in life group either. And we said, come on, let's do this together. And it's been amazing to see the depth of relationship in in just a few meetings and the joy and the strength of saying we are doing life together with other peers and we're experiencing body ministry to each other and the joy and strength of that. Our agenda, we thought, was aligned with God's agenda. And yet, as we assessed it and we brought it before God, we realized it needed some adjustment and we are already experiencing the life and strength and beauty of adjusting our agenda into God's agenda for spiritual community. I wonder what that might mean for you. I wonder what that might mean for you. Jesus continues. And guess what? He recognizes these guys and he recognizes their call to sit at his right and his left in his glory. And what does he say? He says, no, 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 that can't happen right now. Can't happen right now. Listen to him. He says, he says in verse 39b, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. So firstly, he's saying, no, you, 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 you're asking a big thing. Can you do it? And then they say, yes, we can do it. And then he goes, yep, you will do it. But when is he talking about? He now looks much further into the future. 
Jesus gets this glimpse and he goes, much further in the future, yep, you will drink this, this cup and you will be baptized with this baptism. And we know from Acts 12 too that James would go on eventually to be killed by the sword of King Herod for what he believed. And we know from early church history and, and the documentation related to that, not that all the circumstances are fully agreed upon, and there's some controversy around exactly uh, different reports, but we know confidently that many of these disciples would go on to be martyred for what they believed in. Crucified, killed, stoned. And so Jesus, in a sense, says, hey, you're making this big ask. Guess what? One day that ask will be granted. But he says this to them, verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. He's saying you can't, not in my glory. Remember that ask, can we sit at your left and right in your glory? And he says to sit there, that's not for me to decide. And actually commentators help us to suggest that actually Jesus is referring to in his glory is as he is crucified. As he is crucified, it is not theirs to sit at the left and the right, but those spaces have been uniquely reserved for two thieves. And we know the story of those thieves because one calls out for mercy and Jesus reaches out to him. See, these guys carried their crosses just like Jesus. They drank that cup. They were crucified uh, with him just right there at his side and they understood that element of suffering. Remember, though, that he cries out for mercy and Jesus reaches out to him. So Jesus says, hey, guys, actually, in my glory, you don't understand what my glory is, but those seats are reserved for someone else. One day you, however, will drink this cup with me. And then he carries on and he teaches them all about how God's kingdom agendas are contrary to worldly agendas in their whole understanding of leadership. Their whole understanding of leadership. What does he say? And Jesus called them and he said to them. So he's still trying to teach them that they're missing his agenda here completely. And he teaches them now about the difference between these agendas. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servants, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, they're still on this kind of upwardly mobile trajectory. They're like, come on, Jesus, give us the places of prominence. Give us the privilege. Give us the profile. And what does Jesus say? No, 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 you're fundamentally misunderstanding. The world's agenda for glory is different to God's agenda for glory, right? And he points it out in, in kind of an understanding of leadership. Your worldly leadership agenda, lord it over your people. Exercise authority kingdom leadership agenda, not lording it over, but being a servant and a slave to all, not being served, but seeking to serve others and giving your life away for others. Isn't that a different picture of leadership and greatness to the one that we're used to in our kind of cultural all around us? See, kingdom culture is so countercultural; it's so upside down. And I wonder for you, what does your area of leadership and influence look like? If Jesus came to visit you there this week, maybe it's at home because you're doing COVID Zoom, right? But in, think about the context of leadership and influence, whether that is your home or your office or your, your school or wherever it is. And Jesus had to come and visit you. Would he find you operating in a worldly leadership agenda or in a kingdom leadership agenda? Would it be you lording it over your people? Would it be you exercising authority in a kind of you know, huge way, unhelpful way? Or would he see you being a servant and pouring out your life for others? See, this is the great paradox of true leadership, and, and Jesus is trying to teach them into this. 
And I remember years ago watching this Australian uh, historian. He's a history lecturer. His name's John Dixon, and he, he's written a book called uh, Humilitas. And he was talking about uh, his research into humility in the world. And he was speaking about how it's amazing to see that all the great leaders throughout kind of ancient history, all of them were great leaders because of their might and their strength and their power and their wealth and their kind of, you know, the victories in in kind of military affairs and things like that. And he says that was so true and this whole honor of self, the kind of Greek gods who honored themselves and Greek mythology and all of those kinds of mythology, I'm saying that wrong, mythology, all of those dynamics was all about the honor of self, right? The honor of self. And he says this is true throughout the history books until a certain point. And he says when you look at the history books, you can trace back our current modern appreciation for humility in leaders. And you can trace back our general kind of the world's mindset change around how greatness actually is expressed. You can track it all back to a Middle Eastern man who didn't live beyond the age of 35 named Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't that amazing? Jesus starts the humility revolution, and he starts it right here in these verses. Humility is seen as beautiful in our world. Strength and power being held on uh, on behalf of others is seen as beautiful. Books like Leaders Eat Last and Givers and Takers, which kind of are modern management books, those books are all successful because Jesus introduced upside-down kingdom dynamics in these very verses. But whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant. And Jesus is pointing out that his service was an ultimate service towards us. See, he wasn't about to just take the bullet for some of his friends. No, King Jesus was about to drink a cup of cosmic wrath on behalf of all humanity. And his glory was his death. His willingness to lay his life down fully was his glory. Instead of a throne, he gets a cross. Instead of a crown of gold, he gets a crown of thorns. What a beautiful, upside-down, scandalous gospel this is, right? What a powerful thing undeserved grace is. And undeserved grace is still being outworked in our world today as the king of all glory stands in front of you and I, and he still asks this question of it, what is it that I can do for you? See, this is so counter to our world, right? Because kingdom agendas are not the same as worldly agendas. They're contrary. And that's gonna bring us in towards our last point here today. And that is, We're going to meet this guy. His name's Blind Bartimaeus, right? We're going to see a few comparisons introduced over the kind of last few people that we've been looking at, and even as far back as the rich young ruler that Doug spoke to us about last week. Let's read from verse 46. This is the last little section. It says this, and they came to Jericho. Now, Jericho is about 25 Ks from Jerusalem, so they're nearing in now on the way back to Jerusalem. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man saying, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? See those words again. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. 
This section introduces our third point. It's most likely the most important point for today, not that it's the longest. We've looked at God as his own agenda. We've looked at how God's kingdom agenda is different to worldly agendas. But now the third point is this, and I want us to recognize it, is that our agenda is shaped by rightly recognizing Jesus for who he is. And we see this amazingly in Blind Bart's life, right? I'm not sure about you, but do you see the paradox Who's the one person that actually sees Jesus for who he is and actually understands how Jesus' economy works? The blind guy. The blind guy's the one guy that sees clearly in this moment. See, by calling him son of David, blind Bartimaeus is recognizing that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he was a beggar, right? He was a beggar. So as he, as he calls out to the son of David and he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, he's a beggar. And so he doesn't kind of keep his, his begging at the same level. He's sitting on the side of the street. What would he normally ask for? I'm guessing food, maybe something to drink, maybe some money, maybe some clothes. Those are the kinds of things he generally begs for. But what does he cry out to Jesus? He totally ups the ante a whole lot because he's dealing with the son of David, the promised Messiah. And so he dials it up and he says, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And then he makes his big ask. Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Bart doesn't ask for any of these low-level things. He knows who he's dealing with, and so he ramps it up. He ramps it up. He says, let me recover my sight. He asks Jesus for the impossible. He asks Jesus for the supernatural. He asks Jesus for something that is completely otherworldly, and he does so with confidence. Why? Because he understands who he's dealing with. He understands this is the promised Messiah. This isn't like the car guard at the back around of our shop right there that sees if you're driving a Merc and it's like, oh, 10 Rand, 10 Rand. And, and then he sees your Merc and he's like, oh, 50 Rand, 50 Rand. No, no, no. This is not kind of a calculation in that regard. No, he is fundamentally asking for something impossible. He's not just saying, you're more wealthy, so I'll ask for more wealth. He's saying, you are God, and so I'll ask for a miracle. Blind Bart's agenda is clearly being shaped by recognizing who Jesus is. And the way he calls out to him is so key too, right? Because he understands a kingdom economy. Not only does he affirm who he is dealing with and calling to, but he also understands the nature of this request. This is not, I've been good and I've earned it, so won't you give it to me like the rich young ruler? This is not like, hey, we're your special chummies, James and John. Can we have places of prominence? This is not like the disciples saying, hey, can we, we as disciples be at the front of the lunch queue? No, he recognizes who Jesus is. He recognizes in God's economy how things work, and he just goes, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. People try and shut him up but he knows who he's dealing with. He understands the nature of this exchange and he calls out all the loudest son of David, have mercy on me. See, his agenda is being shaped by who Jesus is and he's growing in his confidence to ask for not what he deserves, but unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Sounds like a son to me. Sounds like a daughter to me who's willing to approach the heart of the Father, the heart of the Father as displayed through the life of Christ and ask for unmerited favor. Seems blind Bart is the only guy who understands grace. Jesus has the power to give him what he desperately needs. See, what, about, what else can we see about blind Bart as we bring this into land? See, it shapes his agenda for his life in such foundational ways. So contrary to last week's rich young ruler, Bart easily leaves everything behind. Why? Because the scripture says he's only got a cloak. And he jumps out of his cloak and he leaves it behind and he runs to Jesus. Whereas the rich young ruler says he had much wealth. And so he doesn't end up running to Jesus. Bart ends up following Jesus in joy. 
Whereas last week, we see the rich young ruler kind of leaving dejected, right? Missing out on being with Jesus. And blind Bart ends up seeing both spiritually and physically. Whereas the rich young ruler seems to remain in his spiritual blindness. He doesn't get it. I wonder who of those two men got to see the crucified Christ? Who of those two men got to see the resurrected Christ? See how our agendas are shaped by seeing Jesus for who he really is. In conclusion, imagine Jesus is standing in front of you today and he's asking, what do you want me to do for you? I wanna know what's your response? What's your response? Who do you see him as? Is he the kind of cosmic butler to your life? who's here to make your life better, or is God the God of the universe, Christ, the, the king of the universe, and, and is he, do you understand that he radically wants to change your life and invite you into his purpose? And, and who do you see yourself as in this moment? Are you the disciple looking for promotion, or are you the rich young ruler who's looking for affirmation of your good works, or are you a blind beggar that can today in confidence cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I believe that God is willing to stop today. I believe that God is wanting to speak and respond and move towards the honest cries of blind beggars like Bartimaeus today. Jesus is standing here and he's asking, what do you want me to do for you? I want to invite the band onto the stage and we're going to pray and then we're going to have communion together. Let's close our eyes. God, we thank you for the truth of your words. We thank you that, God, we know that you have plans and purposes and that ultimately we can see that your plans and purposes are good. God, we don't understand always, just like these guys uh, they didn't understand how suffering and pain was part of your plan and your purpose. And today, God, as we live in a broken, COVID-riddled world, God, we, we don't always understand how death and pain is part of the plan, God. And, and we're so quick to want to remove that. We're so quick to want to say, God, this is how you should run the world and this is how things should go. And we don't understand and yet, God, I pray that we would fundamentally see you for who you are and we would be like blind Bartimaeus, those who are willing to cry out to you, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Just this week, as I was pondering some of these things, I thought that there may be some that are called to throw off the beggar's cloak to throw off the beggar's cloak in your relationship with God. That there may be cloaks of dependency in your life. There's cloaks that define you and would wanna keep you down. And, and we see blind Bartimaeus just throwing off his cloak and running to Jesus unhindered. I wonder what those cloaks of dependency or cloaks that define you would be and how God would wanna see you just remove those things and come to him. I believe for others, maybe some for the very first time, there's an invitation from God to, to leave the sitting and waiting posture and to, to jump up, to spring up, as the scripture says, and to run to Jesus today. Run to Jesus, just like blind Bartimaeus did. Call out to him, throw yourself upon the mercies of God. If that's you, it's not hard to do. It's a posture of the heart. It's a, it's a coming to Jesus. It's to, say, it's to say, I recognize that I have sin and shortcoming in my own life and my own kind of agenda. I'm, I'm, I'm destined for death and brokenness. And, and God, I need a savior to come and rescue me out of these things. I need you, the one who is willing to drink the cup of wrath on behalf of my sin. I need you to come and step in and to be my savior, my leader, my Lord. Just ask Jesus to do that right now, where you are. For the rest of us, 
Let's be those who cry out to Jesus. Have mercy on us, Lord. Let's be those like the Israelites that don't wander in the desert kind of groaning and complaining, but actually just thank God for the daily manna that we receive. Thank God for the fact that he is leading us through this wilderness and wasteland. Thank God for the fact that we are promised land bound. That's who we are as God's people. Jesus has done the work and he's achieved it for us. We're a promised land bound people. Let's take our courage that God is leading us on in these matters. And let's confidently ask God to do the deep work that he desires to do in us. If you've got that communion stuff just close to you there, I want to lead us. When Jesus stands in front of us and he says, what is it that you would have me do for you? It is a bit of a trick question. Because who are we? Who are we to know how to answer that question? Who are we to be able to confidently say it's this, Lord, and know that that's perfectly aligned with his purpose and his agenda? But I'll tell you what, when we come to the communion table, we can say, This is what we need because Christ was willing to come out of heaven to provide this for us. His broken body, his broken body so that we can live lives full and lives eternal. His shed blood so that our sins can be washed away. If you're looking for an answer to the question, what is it that Jesus can do for you? It's been done. It's been done in fullness. It doesn't doesn't break our confidence as sons and daughters to, to run to the Father and to make our today requests known. It doesn't break our confidence. This should build our confidence. If Jesus was willing to do this much to see us rightfully reinstated to relationship with the Father, how much more confidence do we have to come to Him today? Church, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. God, we thank you that we find a confidence not in a a worldly agenda, but we find a confidence in an other earthly agenda, a kingdom agenda which you have seen break into our world and for which we are eternally grateful, God. We find our confidence in not what we can do and what we are doing, God, but we find our confidence in what you have done upon the cross, your perfect work there, which allowed you to declare that it is finished and to speak that final and better word over our lives. God, today we take our rest in these things. We take our place in the confidence of grace in which we now stand and we confidently come to you, our good heavenly Father, and we make our personal requests known because we know that your love is true and full. And we ask, God, that you would give us a grace to align the agenda of our lives with the full agenda of your your kingdom because we see you for who you are and we rightfully respond to you. Give us this ability, God, to daily, every day and this week, in and out, to see you for who you are and to rightfully respond to you. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, church. We're going to sing one last song.